0: O Father, bring us nearer to Thee by every word of praise, by every prayer of thanksgiving, and by the word of God proclaimed from the pulpits of the churches, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And Sit down. Good morning. <laughs> once again. Um, we're going to ask you to open your Bibles once again to the book of Romans. Book of Romans, chapter 1. Preached from it last week. I'll continue here, at least for the moment. Embarking on a series preaching on the Book of Romans can take you a lot of years, <laughs> so I'm not claiming that's what's happening here. But for the moment, it is what's happening, and uh, I just felt very moved to speak on Romans 1. I've said to you many times, I believe we're in a Romans 1 world, and if you don't know what that means, I hope you'll figure it out or or get an idea of what I mean by that as we go through this um, really very powerful and revealing section of Scripture. All right, I've actually cut this down. That happens sometimes as I ride. I get a little um, ambitious at the beginning and find out I've got a passage here that's going to uh, take some deeper consideration than to try to speak on many verses at a time. So I'm going to take on verses 18 through 23 this morning. So if you're with me, let's read those. Um, I'll tell you what, I'm going to start on verse 16 because that will bring us back into some context of what uh, we spoke about last week. So verse 16, chapter 1 of Romans. And the apostle Paul writes to the church, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, but also for the Greek For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory, changed the glory of the inter- incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creepy, creeping things. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would add your very presence to the proclamation of this, your holy word. O oh, Father, in Jesus' name, Be with us here as we look into the deep things of God. Give us revelation afresh this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so a a little word of review this morning. Um, when When the apostle writes an epistle, which is a Greek word for letter, to a church, obviously he's not at the church. He's somewhere else writing a letter back. He's heard that things have gone wrong or things uh, needed more enlightenment, and uh, maybe he's correcting some doctrine or correcting some uh, practical things in the church, maybe even rebuking them for blatant immorality in the church. Any number of reasons the apostle might be moved to write an epistle to an existing church. Now, some of the churches Paul founded himself on his very famous missionary journeys, which you read about in the book of Acts. He goes through the various cities. He founded certain churches. Certainly the Church of Philippi we know he founded. He wrote a letter later called Philippians that he wrote to the people of the Church of Philippi. Also Thessalonica he founded. And there were other churches that he founded as well. The Roman church Paul did not found, but it appears, or at least it would seem, that the people that did found it, which were other disciples, were very likely... Not only Christian disciples, but disciples of Paul. And they went into Rome, and they founded this church or churches. Try to remember, Rome is the biggest city in the ancient world in the first century. Ephesus was perhaps second, also a church that Paul founded. Um, But Rome is very big, a metropolitan city, people from all over the world. And as you know, he says to the Jew first and also for the Greek. In the Hebrew mind, the world broke up very neatly into two categories. You were Jewish or you were Greek. But you weren't, didn't have to be Greek by ethnicity. You could be uh, Greek by culture because the whole world spoke Greek at this time thanks to the campaigns of Alexander the Great three centuries before Paul's time where the Lord really unraveled the curse at Babel by giving everyone the same language. And so the New Testament... Um, is actually written in Greek, the whole of it, with the exception of some very few parts that it appears were written in Aramaic originally. But um, so we have the world split up to the Jew and the Greek, and Paul has claimed very famously from the prophet Habakkuk that the just shall live by faith. Friends, that is the very phrase that saved Martin Luther when he came across it. He recognized that it is by faith that we are saved, whether you're Jewish, or whether you're not Gentile or Jew, sons of Abraham or sons of the Greek world at the time. We are saved one way, and that is through faith in Christ, for the just shall live by faith. And then he goes into this section, and it's almost to some degree a strange transition. Um, but what he's doing is he's He's unfolding to the Christians at Rome the condition of the world into which we live and to which the churches have placed with their great commission to preach the gospel of Christ. And so he begins here in verse 18 where he writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So this first verse serves as a summary of this passage, if you will. It declares that the wrath, which is the anger of God, is revealed. And it's revealed from above. In other words, everyone has some witness of it. People in the world are recognizing that God is not happy with the world. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And the rest of the passage denotes the distinct ways in which the wrath is to be expressed or revealed among the society of men. Now, the Greek word for wrath is the word orge. That's the word used here. They could have used other words. They used that word for a very specific reason. It's defined as and sometimes translated as anger. And as I point this this out, rather, so that we may receive the real intent of the passage. It is not specifically about God's judgment upon man. It's not about God's much-heralded vengeance upon man for his abominable tendency toward idolatry, although those themes are certainly here in the passage, but God's wrath here is his simmering anger. It's as if God is in heaven, simmering. Over time, watching the sins of men offend him. All right? It's anger that's unleashed over time. That's the emphasis of orge. I'm going to demonstrate that to you from the lexicon. It's over time, even a long, long time. You know, Rome is a very ancient place already by the first century. It's already centuries old. Some would say a millennium old already. And yet Rome is still in existence and will exist For another 500 years, I believe the the date's 476 A.D., when Rome was overthrown. And I'm talking about the city of Rome. So God has long suffering toward the sins of men. And Rome lasted a long time in his displeasure. So it's anger, not necessarily judgment that's released by God and revealed from heaven. There's at least one other word that might have been used here, but orge was chosen to denote the unfolding disposition of God toward human society over a long time. The lexicon points to the word thumos. You may have heard the word thumos. It sounds like we get words like thermal or heat, right? Or thermos (laughs) from the word thumos. And it's usually defined as wrath, not as wrath rather, but as anger. And the difference is subtle, but not unimportant to the passage. The lexicon defines orge this way. Orge suggests a more settled or abiding condition of mind, frequently with a view to taking revenge. Orge is less sudden in its rise than thumos, but more lasting in its nature. Thumos quickly blazes up and quickly subsides. Orge represents a lasting disposition of God with regard to men over a period of time. So the passage is not necessarily referring to a specific period in human history. It could be referring to any time in history for that matter. It has always been my opinion that men live almost always and universally under the wrath of God. It's his ongoing disposition with regard to men in their iniquity. And especially for their disregard for the sacrifice of his son, which was done in their behalf. And they seem so ungrateful of it, even scorning of it. Remember the hecklers at the cross? He saved others, let him save himself, right? Little did they know he was dying for that very arrogance that they were expressing. And so it's God's ongoing disposition with regard to men for their iniquity, especially the disregard for the sacrifice of his son. In other words, God gave his best. He loved more than he hated. In fact, we know from verse 16 of chapter 3 of John that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But it only takes to verse 18 where we find out because the world was condemned already. And so yet both the love of God for the for the for people and the hatred of god for the sins of people exist simultaneously and continually in the annals of human history and this fact is demonstrated by paul's continual use of the past tense with regard to god's ensuing judgment We don't read that if human society continues in a godless direction that God will act out against them, rather we read this, God gave them up. Not God will give them up, not God's in the process of giving them up, but God gave them up. What does this mean? If we read the passage carefully, we'll see that it's a done deal with regard to the anger of God against the prevailing societies of people in the earth. And so the passage becomes the Apostles' explanation to Christians in this most pagan of cities of the ancient world, Rome, as to why the Roman world was left so long to writhe in its own lusts and its own depraved idolatry. The church there is to represent the light, hence the epistle to the Romans. They are to manifest God again in a city and in a time when God was unceremoniously evicted from their affections. It interests me, and I've heard historians say, when did that point in time come for America? When did that point in time where we unceremoniously evicted God from our national... consciousness some some people say back in the 60s when they put prayer out of the schools i don't know if that's the case i mean before you can do something like that a lot of simmering anger against god had to happen before right so i can't pinpoint that for you today authoritatively but it's it's sort of a stake in history where we can see we don't want him in our public institutions anymore and that was done in rome long before this you know there is a theory that polygamy not polygamy, Um, polygamous (laughs) polytheism is what I'm trying to get to. The belief in many gods, not a belief in many wives. But a belief in many gods preceded the belief in one God. We know from Scripture that's not true. Ancient man believed in one God. Adam and Eve only had one God who walked in the cool of the day in the garden. Not many gods. Bacchus wasn't there. Aphrodite wasn't there. No, only Yahweh was there, right, in the cool of the day. We know that in Noah's time there was one God. They didn't worship other gods, at least not in a formal sense, the way they did in Rome and Greece with the streets lined with the various temples of the various gods of their pantheon, right? Right? The pantheon is a word that means the roster of their gods. There's a whole list of gods. So that came about later. That's my historical uh, view of the changing religions of men over time. But there are a number of phrases from the passage which I might have used as a title for the sermon other than the one that I used. There are some fearful biblical concepts dealt with in this passage that could exemplify the overall meaning of the passage. Certainly, wrath of God could have been... Could have been a a good title for this section. Another might have been the paradox that his invisible attributes, friends, listen, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. It's a paradox. Certainly suppressing the truth would work. We live in a time when truth is so suppressed, I fear that God is increasingly angry with our lying culture we live in. We could also look to the outcome of God's wrath as expressed by Paul to the Romans in this passage where he writes, they became futile in their thoughts. Feudal means empty. Their thoughts were empty. Friends, there's a lot of empty-headedness going around today. And I ask you not to contribute to that. Or perhaps we could say professing to be wise. How many people profess to be wise today? I watch news media broadcasts and, and there's all boxes with people's heads in them. There might be like nine All these people are experts on this subject. Do you ever notice when you watch one of these panels talk at the end, you realize you haven't learned anything? Particularly if you're kind of up on facts and figures and um, policies and things, you you tend not to learn anything. So futile in their thoughts, professing to be wise, a lot of professors out there. And then it says, the result of professing to be wise is what? They became fools. And, of course, I could have used the term that appears repeatedly in the passage. God gave them up. He gave them up to uncleanness, verse 24. He gave them up to vile passions, verse 26. He gave them over to a debased mind, verse 28. And that's where I say we live in a Romans 1 world today. We're so lost in terms of understanding obvious, simple Concepts. Friends, we don't know a victim from a criminal anymore. We don't know the difference between freedom and slavery. We don't know the difference between justice and injustice. Everyone used to sort of have at least a working knowledge of these things. Friends, we don't even know, we're not really sure of the difference between men and women, or if there is a difference, or if you can wipe out the difference by marking a little X on the next time you fill out what your sex is. None of the above. We don't know what love and hate is anymore. These are simple concepts, aren't they? I thought they were all my life till recently. And so he gave them over to this debased mind where the simple, reasonable things of life are no longer understood by the things that are made, which is us. We're the things that are made. He's the maker, we're the made, the M-A-D-E. And in each case, God's giving up on the unrighteous results in withdrawal of his grace, and that's what Paul's talking about. All God has to do to vent his wrath is to leave us to ourselves. He doesn't have to punish us. He to, he, all he has to do is say, all right, that's how you want to behave. I'm going to let you behave that way. So He leave us to ourselves, as Paul writes, to do those things which are not fitting. In other words, the things we're already doing. The things that a sinful race would naturally gravitate to. The things we desire the things that give us pleasure, the things that we glory in, become the very things that we'll be left to when God has had enough of us. He'll leave us to all the sins that we gloried in. And the proof is, Rome is hundreds of years old by this time and one of the most idolatrous places on earth. Now there's a couple of Old Testament stories that I think typify this situation. I think it's right because I told you that In this time, in the first century, when Paul was going around preaching the gospel, friends, the scriptures that they refer to are always the Old Testament scriptures. Now, how do we know that? Because the New Testament wasn't written yet. It took several decades for the New Testament to be written, and then it had to be approved and circulated like we had to know. A lot of people wrote a lot of things. Is this the word of God or is the word of man? And these things had to be discerned by people like Paul and the disciples of Paul and the generations of men who study such things. So they went to the Old Testament. So when you gave an illustration of exactly what he's talking about, you would use an Old Testament story to illustrate that, wouldn't you? And there's a couple of Old Testament stories that I think typify this situation. There was a time during the wilderness years of Israel where God simply departed from the people. Now I talked about this some years ago. I remember we were still meeting at the high school and I did my very lengthy series on Exodus, all right? Well, there was a time there that I'd like to go back to, in Exodus 33, where God said to the children of Israel, very famously, go to the land of milk and honey. That means the land of plenty, right? For I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way. In other words, I'm so mad at you, I'm not taking back the things that I promised you're going to go, but I'm not going with you anymore. And God left. Friends, remember the Shekinah glory, a fire by night and a cloud by day? It left the people. That manifestation of God left the people. And listen to what it says here. Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Ornaments were a sign of joy, right? Right? And so, due to the grumbling of the people, if you read your Old Testament, particularly your book of Exodus, you'll find the people of God grumbled all the time. They were never content with their deliverance, they always wanted something else. Hey, deliverance isn't easy, it's hard. Remember the spies? There are giants in the land. Oh, I forgot to tell you, the land's yours, but you've got to beat up the giants. And they didn't want to do it except for Joshua and Caleb, very famously you know, and that's why they left in the wilderness to wander for 40 years. Until the generation dies and the carcasses of the dead are eaten by worms, then I'll let you go in. Your children can go, but you can't. And this is where they are at this time. And so naturally there's this grumbling. So he'll bring them into the land of promise, but his presence will not be with them. They must make of it what they can on their own. In other words, you're on your own now. He's simply too offended to continue with this grumbling. You ever get like that with your children? I remember one time when I was a kid. You know, when we were a kid, we had the idyllic Christmases. I think I've told you this. We had the tree and the lights and the angel and our special little ornaments and our stockings hung by the chimney with care in hope that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds and visions of trees. I'm sorry. But um, we had all that stuff. We used to give our parents lists. Remember you gave your parents lists? And they tried to make it so joyous for us. And one year, I just wanted this thing because, you know, kids watched cartoons on TV in the morning. remember that? You used to get up before school, you could watch cartoons, maybe the Three Stooges or something, and they'd advertise all these things, and the kids would want them. And I guess they still do that. Um, and so I asked for this particular little race car that you had. It was called Trick Track. Does anyone remember Trick Track? I knew someone had to be my age. And I got the thing and it was supposed to do these stunts and these things. And I got up Christmas morning and there was my Trick Track. Thank you, Santa. And so I'm up there and I'm playing with the car and it just wouldn't do what it did on the commercial. The commercial suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. No, but it just wouldn't do it for me. And I got mad, and I threw the car, and the next thing I felt was a set of knuckles on my face. My father was indignant. And guess what? This is not where the pastor gets up and tells you how mean my father was. No, I understand his frustration. He tried to make something good. He probably stood in line to get that thing. He brought it there and gave it to me, and it didn't work just like I thought, and I grumbled about it. That's what we're talking about. The father just got mad at the son. That's what I remember about my Christmas of my youth. By the way, I got a few of those in my life, and I probably deserved most of them. So, where was I? Oh, the grumbling of the people and their longing for their old life in Egypt, the Lord was offended. He'll bring them into a land of promise but he won't go with them and so he's simply too offended to go with them and so Moses right Moses is the only one that's not grumbling and friends please believe God does have favorites all right I know we all want to get a participation trophy but Christians ought to get over that because that's not what we see in the scriptures God had a favorite he was Moses Moses could say almost anything to God that would get other people in trouble he didn't get mad at Moses Moses, in fact, I didn't put all this in there because you get limited time and space, but Moses finally came out and said, Lord, if you're not going to take the people that you promised to take, then kill me now, he said to God. I'd be afraid to say that, but Moses said it, and God cared that Moses said it, but at this point in time, in the history of, of, of chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses takes his tent, moves it outside the camp. Why? because the Shekinah glory was going to be over Moses' tent, which became the tent of meeting, by the way. And so they would look out in the distance, and Moses would be worshiping God, and the glory of God in the pillar of cloud would be there. And so he worshiped God alone. And that's, we call that the Shekinah glory. By the way, the scripture doesn't call it that. That's a Hebrew name that we use. But anyways, we read this in verses 7 and 9, where... Moses took his tent, pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. Friends, the children of Israel became sorrowful for their sins, and they pleaded with Moses to entreat the Lord's presence to return to them. They were afraid now. They offended him so much he actually left. And so we read, Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us from here. And so the Lord did relent. And friends, the people did repent. It was one of the biggest revivals in history. Go back and read it. The people were so overjoyed to be put back in the presence of God, they started bringing all of their gifts into the storehouse for the use in the tabernacle, which was the precursor to the temple, right? The big tent of meeting. And they brought their stuff, and they brought their tithes, and they brought their offerings. And they were so overwhelmed the church with offerings that Moses had to make a decree to stop giving gifts to the church. We can't afford it anymore. They had this big warehouse. They ran out of forklifts to bring all the stuff to where Moses wanted it. They couldn't take any more. It was like the Amazon warehouse of the first of the ancient times. So there was this great revival. And they came back. The children of Israel became sorrowful for their sins. And they pleaded with Moses to to ask the Lord to come back. And Moses interceded for them. and And the Lord came back. He did relent. He brought his presence in among them. In other words, the Lord returned to the people when they genuinely showed him that his presence was more important to them than his provision. Friends, we have a great country. We live in a great time. It's a wonderful time to be a Christian no matter what's going on out there friends our land's been blessed with every material blessing conceivable we complain about a supply chain shortage and i complain about it too as i've done but friends we still have more than the, some of the richest countries of history ever had try to remember that and the lord was has not taken away from us our obvious and continual departure from godliness However, if this passage is rightly understood, I think it's safe to say that God received our national message to him that as a society we're more enamored with his material gifts than with his moral intervention. We want his blessing, but we don't want him telling us how to live. That's where they were. We want our freedoms, but not the responsibilities that go with them. It's like a person who receives a precious and valuable gift each year at Christmas time, let's say, from an uncle that he hates. He revels in the uncle's gift, but continues to hate the uncle. He spends his uncle's money, but he's not thankful. So eventually the uncle is offended and stops sending his annual gift. He simply and sadly leaves the scene and leaves the nephew to himself. That's what we see here. We want the gifts. We don't want the giver. Drop them at the door. There's another time in the annals of the king's. Of Israel, when Israel was, or rather Judah really, was allied with Edom, and they went to war with Moab. And this goes back to the second book of Kings, chapter 3. Israel got the upper hand in this battle. And so the king of Moab was out of strategic options, and he performs a hideous act of desperation to win the battle. He makes a sacrifice to his God. But listen to this. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. They couldn't win by military means, so they tried spiritual means. He took his eldest son who would have reigned in his place and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. So he took his son. It doesn't say what age. He could have been quite young, his eldest son. And he decided... That his gods would help him win the war if he sacrificed his son to them. So he burnt his son on a stake and displayed him and hung him over the wall of the city. And then it says, and there was such great indignation in Israel that they departed from him and returned to their own land. What happened here? The kings of Israel and Edom were so disgusted by the spectacle of the burnt body of the son of the king of Moab They left them to themselves and to their own depravity and degradation. You're too disgusting for us to even conquer. That's kind of the picture that Paul's giving. Do you see it? It seems to me this is quite like the Lord's disposition in our passage today. He's not coming with vengeance and destruction. Not in this passage. He's not coming with great turmoil to destroy us. He is simply disgusted and offended by what he sees. And so he leaves human society to himself... And this is what we get this Romans 1 world. It quite reminds me of the children of Israel in the wilderness years, where we read this. Now, the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. Remember that phrase they yielded to intense craving. And the children of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Remember this? In those wilderness years, it was a wilderness, there was no meat. There were no great gardens. They had manna from heaven. He sustained them, but it was the same thing every day. Friends, this passage from Numbers is a picture of the situation that's uh, inserted by Paul in our passage today. It seems God's favor to us may become despised by us. And we as a people may long for the things he has for a time. And when we as a people may long for the things he has... For a time removed us from them. Note the phrase from Numbers which said they yielded to intense craving. Is there anything more descriptive of the times in which we live? We're a society governed by our cravings. It's our right to have our cravings. Right? A man craves another man. As he would naturally crave a woman. He gets specific in the next passage in this chapter about these things. Governed by our cravings. The passage goes on to reveal the complete ingratitude of those who were in the wilderness in Moses' care and the juvenile longing for the things they left behind in Egypt. They were headed to the promised land, friends, the land of milk and honey, right? Where there would be an abundance of good things and material things. Chapter, Chapter 28 of uh deuteronomy goes through all the things they'll have if they'll only obey god right but for a time for one generation for 40 years they've been sentenced to wander due to their national unfaithfulness to god and in their seclusion they longed for their old lives it got it got old 40 years was a long time for them they had god in their midst but they tired of god Got, out, got up every morning, there was the Shekinah glory. Went to bed every night, there was the pillar of fire. Been there, done that. They longed for the things of the flesh that were pleasant to them, even in their oppressive captivity. And so we read this The Israelites say, We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers. The melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. In other words, we've got nothing but God's blessing. (laughs) May I say that before we excoriate the children of Israel for their longings, that we feel their pain with them, it seems to me that we too can long for things that God has taken away from us. We're a fickle and dissatisfied race of beings. And we're hard to please. And we, like them, must learn to check our longings at the door. We must learn to accept the things God has given us as his gracious leniency for the sake of Christ. Friends, we don't have everything we want, but we certainly uh, ought to be thankful we don't have everything we deserve. For if we follow the thrust of the passage, we must recognize that in our fallen state, we deserve so much less than what the least among us has received and achieved in this life. You know, the poor of our nation are richer than the rich of 75% of the world. Really? Paul's words from verse 21 say this, Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. What do you suppose he means by that? So we see this other disqualifying quality in man. We are, as Calvin once depicted us, as displaying monstrous ingratitude. So we are, at the same moment, undeserving of any favor from God and unthankful for the things He has supplied to us. We have, at the same time, abundance and ingratitude. And you don't think God sees that? We have abundance and ingratitude at the same time. That's what they had. We're as thankless children crying out to God for more, 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 and all the while willing to give less, less, less of what He requires of us. God saying, Why am I not enough? Why is my grace not sufficient? Why is my son bleeding on a cross not enough? My spirit not enough. Eternal life not enough. And so the Lord's answer to their longings, to their weeping was this. The Lord will give you meat to eat. And you shall eat. And you'll eat Not one day, not two days, not five days, not ten days, not twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you've despised the Lord who's among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever come up out of Egypt? Remember all the trouble God went through to get them out of Egypt? Remember the plagues? Remember the Red Sea? Remember the Egyptians being drowned? Oh, I want to go back. I don't have leeks and onions. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. What is this passage all about? It's about thanklessness. And how do we know that it's about thankfulness, thanklessness rather? It's because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you. Friends, the knowledge of God is imprinted on every human soul at birth. John wrote of it. In the Gospel of John chapter 1, he wrote, Of Christ, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Every man coming into the world has some light of God in him. The Apostle saying that most people, though they refuse to acknowledge God in their thoughts or in their affections, are cognizant on some level that God is the author of their every blessing and every happy occasion, not to mention their very existence. I believe most people believe that. In fact, I know they do. Paul said it, and John has said it. Of all the people in the earth, the children of Israel had God in their midst. They had the Shekinah glory to lead them. They had the manner of heaven to feed them, the leadership of Moses to inspire them, the power of God to deliver them, the love of God to fill them. And yet they cried out for leeks and the onions of their pagan oppressors, the very oppressors they cried out to be freed from. They forgot their former longings to be free. We may remember from Exodus chapter 1, the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. They made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. And their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. And if all this rigor was not enough, then Pharaoh demanded their children. The king of Egypt spoke to the midwives. Remember that? And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birthstools. If it is a son, they shall kill him. So he put them to labor day and night. No Sabbath off, right? And then wanted their children too, because they were too multiplied. And God released them from this physical bondage. They cried out to God, it says, and he heard them. They were released from tyranny, from oppression. They were released to have their sons born and nurtured, not ordered to be slain by a tyrannical despot. And yet they wept and whined and pleaded with the God of their deliverance to go back to all the things they hated about life for the sake of leeks and onions. And I'm quite afraid that the society of our time, even our beloved American society, is of quite the same opinion. I've said it to you many times, we live in a Romans 1 world. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You may say I'm an atheist, but you have no excuse for not knowing God. God did not leave himself unrevealed. And not just the bland revelation that, well, there might be something out there. You ever hear parents say, oh, I went back to church, I want my children to believe in something. There's a lot of things you can believe in that aren't going to do you much good. (laughs) Oh, there's something out there. That's what he's talking about. Oh, there must be an initial cause. or There might be an intelligent design or a, a divine impersonal force out there. No, the Word tells us that God's attributes though invisible to the eye, are yet clearly seen by the Spirit, clearly felt in our affections, clearly known in our intellects. And how may I be so certain that all men know God? Because Paul says so. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Friends, I told you many times, atheism is the beginning of insanity. Your foolish heart gets darkened. It's the beginning of it. It's a reliance upon human reason without admitting the source of reason. Friends, reason is a great thing, but it's a gift of God. It's an acceptance of one's own rational existence without an explanation as to how such a complicated thing as human wisdom emerged from the slime of earth's primordial ooze. In other words, where did human wisdom come from if not from God? The evolutionist says, well, It came out of the primordial ooze where the first creatures were accidentally developed in the earth and evolved into higher forms of life. To believe that you're your own creation is to believe that the circumstances of your birth are in your control. Friends, if that were true, everyone would have been born in America. Why would you want to be born in a poor, ravaged country if if you're the author of your own birth? To believe you're your own creation is to believe that the circumstances of your birth were in your control. If we're each the engineer of our own beginning, then why would anyone be born in squalor or poverty or captivity? Such things are not in our control, and there's this nagging little voice in our heads that continues to remind us of these obvious things. And so we're born knowing God, and the sinful rebelliousness of our fallen natures refuse to glorify the God that we know. And don't believe that atheists don't believe in God, friends. They believe in the existence of God. A theist believes in the God who is there, and the atheist does not believe in the God who is there, but he's still there. Your belief doesn't create him or negate him, right? In either case, God is still there. It's quite like this. It's quite like not believing that the sky is blue. Your belief does not affect the color of the sky, not by one shade or one hue. The atheist is quite like the person who shakes a fist at the sky and declares that its blueness offends him. He can find no rationale as to why blue was the chosen color. He didn't vote on the blueness of the sky. In fact, he hates blue. And yet the azure canopy of the sky stares him relentlessly in the face and its quiet existence becomes its best argument. He's there, and you know it. If they truly did not believe in his essential existence, then why aren't they called non-theists? No, they don't like God. They don't retain him in their thoughts, but they know he's there. Friends, thankfulness is sanity. These were not thankful. Therefore, their foolish hearts were darkened. To return hatred for blessing is the deranged state of human rebelliousness. We should not be surprised that the spoiled nephew hates the generous uncle. It's the cornerstone of all our theology as it relates to the spiritual condition of man. It's called total depravity, not partial, right? We're not in the scratch and dent pile, totally ruined in sin and need to be reborn. Not rehabbed, but reborn. Have you heard it? The witness of the divine is there at birth, but the inheritance of the sin of Adam is there with it. And the newly born son is as disposed to rebellion as was the first son. Friends, the womb is your garden, and both God and the serpent are there in it. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Friends, do you suppose Adam professed to be wise in his choices? Imagine the moment the fruit was bitten. We know it was pleasant to the eyes. It was good for food. It was able to make one wise. And so for a mere moment... For a fleeting instant, the half-truth of the serpent must have been felt, and it must have felt glorious. Imagine the power of forbidden knowledge flooding the mind of the sinner. He ate, he was wise, he had the knowledge of good and evil, the glory of innocence, the power of purity was squandered, and the sinner received his degree. He was finally wise, and with his new wisdom came his new revelation that he chose another God, and now he has to choose another garden. This one's mine. Choose a garden of your own making. The rich uncle no longer wanted him in his. We all must wonder for a mere moment, the last gasp of a bleeding Savior must have been the smell of victory to the sinners who thought justice had been done. Few people standing by, Satan himself, must have gloried when Christ expired on the cross, thought they had won. Sin's always pleasurable, friends, for a season. How about Cain? Was he wise in his own eyes? How about Lot's wife? How about Nimrod or Achan or Saul or Judas? These were also wise, true sophomores, friends. What is sophomore? It means wise fools. So if you're in the 10th grade, I'm sorry. Verse 23. They changed the glory of incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Friends, professing to be wise, they became fools and saw Godhead in other things. They saw Godhead in beastly things, in sliming things. They changed the glory. That too is a good title for the sermon. And so it is the title. They changed the glory of God. They saw it in themselves. Do you remember who famously did that? Lucifer saw God's glory in himself. I will mount up as the Most High. They became fools. And what do fools do? They mistake gl- gory for glory and creeping things for celestial things. I thought about closing with this memory from, from the past, the great high priestess of all these ideas. I was watching Oprah one afternoon and Oprah was interviewing Evander Holyfield. Remember him? heavyweight champion also a believer and a noisy one he liked to talk about it he was the heavyweight champion he overcame all odds he beat all comers he professed to love god and she asked him do you believe in the holy spirit and he answered oh do you believe in the human spirit and he said i believe in the holy spirit i thought that was i laughed when i heard him say it with joy do you believe in the human spirit that was her thing right i believe in the holy spirit he said I don't know if we retained such a profound Christian witness, but it did my heart good to hear a plain-spoken champion, someone who never would have called himself wise, that no one would say was a wise man, declare glory in things that are truly glorious. Father, we ask that you would teach us of ourselves from these words as the apostle was teaching the brethren at Rome so long ago, Father, but things have not changed. We pray, Father, that we would retain The glory of God in our services, in our worship, and in our lives, in our prayers, and in our thankfulness. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.